Happy Sabbath, brethren. It is a wonderful opportunity to share this day with you, to be able to be here on this Pentecost weekend, as Mr. Nathan talked about. Before I spoke, Mr. Lee gave me some admonition. He said, don't talk about Pentecost, which is a little difficult the day before. So, we will talk about Pentecost a little bit today, (laughs) but just a little bit. Appreciate very much the sermonette by Mr. Nathan and the reminder about the Pentecosts of all Pentecosts, The, the time that we look back to as we review the meaning of the Pentecost. Appreciate very much the special music by my wife and Mr. McCullough. Because the music ties into the meaning of the Feast of Pentecost, doesn't it? Emmanuel in the Hebrew means God with us. And God is with us, those of us who are baptized. God is in us because of that Pentecost of all Pentecosts. Our bodies are now the temple of God's Holy Spirit. Brethren, today what I'd like to do is talk about the temple of God's Holy Spirit. This heavenly, or excuse me, this earthly tent that Paul talks about, that we all dwell inside of. But before we get into the meat of the sermon, what I'd like to do is briefly review some information on the tabernacle in the wilderness and on Solomon's temple. Because we can learn a lot about our temples, our bodies, and what God's expectations are for them when we look at the outline that God gives us in the Old Testament. When he gives us a lot of detail on how the temple, how the tabernacle were to be constructed and created and kept up. If you turn with me to Exodus chapter 26... We'll go back to the commands that God gave to Moses, Exodus 26. And as you're turning there, it's interesting to keep in mind that Exodus chapters 25 through 40 and Leviticus chapters 1 through 9 outline the details of that tabernacle in the wilderness, how it was supposed to be designed, how it was supposed to be constructed, how it was supposed to be maintained. In Leviticus 1-9, through God outlines the responsibilities of the priesthood who were the caretakers for that tabernacle. And then we see a bit of a reiteration of that once we get into the Chronicles. Exodus chapter 26. We'll start reading in verse 1, and we're going to skim through the chapter briefly. Before we get there, though, let me just remind you a little bit of what God has commanded Moses before Exodus chapter 26. He talks about the offerings that were supposed to be given in the temple. He talks about the Ark of the Covenant, how it was supposed to be constructed, how it was supposed to be carried. He talks about the table for the showbread that was supposed to be placed before God daily, how the table was supposed to be constructed and overlaid with gold, how the showbread was supposed to be always before God. Moses was given the command for how to develop and how to design and how to create the lampstand. 
That was supposed to be in the holy place. And then in verse or chapter 26, he begins to give some commands regarding the tabernacle itself. Verse 1, he says, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen and blue and purple and scarlet thread. With artistic designs of cherubim, you shall weave them. And then he gets into the length. God's very specific here. He says the length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, roughly 42 feet. The width of each curtain, four cubits, about six feet. These are long curtains. Verse 3, five curtains shall be coupled together to one another. The other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain on the selvage of one set. And likewise, you shall do on the outer edge of the other curtain on the second set. Let's go down to verse 7. Some more details. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair to be a tent over the tabernacle. You shall make 11 curtains. And he gives the lengths there. Verse 14, he says, You shall make a covering of ram skin dyed in red for the tent, a covering of the badger skin above. And for the tabernacle, you shall make boards of acacia wood standing upright. Ten cubits shall be the length in the board, and a cubit shall, and a half shall be the width of each board. He goes on to talk about how they should be covered with gold. Verse 29. And make their rings of gold as holders for the bars, and overlay the bars with gold. You shall rise up, raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern which you were shown on the mountain. So apparently Moses was even given an image of what this tabernacle would look like. Verse 31, you shall make a veil for the tabernacle, woven of blue and purple and scarlet thread of fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. You shall hang it upon four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. And then he goes on. He then begins to talk about the altar and several other things. Let's skip down to Exodus 38. Exodus 38. We'll start reading in verse 21 here. We're skipping over a lot of the detail. In fact, you may want to go back at some point and review the detail that God put into the design of his temple. God put it in the scripture for a reason, didn't he? It wasn't just filler. God didn't say, you know, Moses, you're getting to the book of Exodus. There's not enough information. Let's just put in a bunch of details on the tabernacle. God put it here for reasons. One of the reasons, one of the lessons we can draw out of this is God pays attention to detail, doesn't he? Detail is important to God. In the detail of the temple, the residing place of the Lord on the earth, where he dwelt among men, was very important. Exodus 38, verse 21. This is the inventory of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony, which was counted according to the commandment of Moses for the service of the Levites by the hand of Ishamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. Um, We'll skip down to verse 24. The inventory. So this is what was comprised in the temple of all the products that were made. And there were tools that were used for the offerings and for the sacrifices. There was a huge 
roughly 10,000-gallon pool of water in front of the tabernacle made out of bronze. There was an altar. There were all kinds of things that the priest used to serve in the tabernacle. God says in verse 24, all the gold that was used in all the work of the holy place, that is, the gold of the offering was 29 talents and 730 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. That is somewhere over 7, 000, excuse me, 1,740 pounds of gold, over 790 kilos. Translated in today's dollars, you're talking about over $35 million worth of gold in the tabernacle. What else? Verse 25, the silver from those who were numbered of the congregation was 100 talents and 1,700 27, excuse me, 1,775 shekels. That's roughly 6,000 pounds of silver, three tons of silver. And he goes on to talk about the bronze as well. God gave a lot of detail for how to take care of this temple. What's exciting, if you flip back to chapter 40, after all of these details were followed, After all of these guidelines for the development of the tabernacle, its creation, the cleansing of the tabernacle, the preparation of the priesthood and the cleansing of the priesthood, when it was all said and done, what happened? Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Lord the one who would become Jesus Christ, entered the tabernacle and he dwelt there among men in this perfect dwelling place that he gave specific details for the building of and for the upkeep of. We know that that tabernacle in the wilderness lasted and was used for many years. God gave David then some more instruction before David died, on the development of the temple. And Solomon was given the privilege of building this temple. Do you remember how many years it took Solomon to build the temple? It took seven and a half, a little over seven and a half years for Solomon to build the temple. When Solomon was building the temple, you couldn't hear a hammer on the building site. A number of you are contractors in here or have been. What would it be like to be on a building site where there was no noise of a hammer? What does that mean? In today's world, that means nothing's happening. In Solomon's world, everything was prefabricated. The stones for the temple were cut off-site, pre-fit, taken to the temple site and assembled quietly. The lumber for the temple was pre-cut off-site, pre-assembled, deconstructed, and reassembled quietly on the site of the temple. Seven and a half years later, a unique event occurred. Second Chronicles chapter 7. Second Chronicles chapter 7. The first several chapters of Second Chronicles talk about the assembling of this temple. Again, you may want to go back and read that on your own. But after all was said and done, the temples built this earthly temple where God, the Lord, is going to reside. The priesthood is prepared. The offerings are readied. 
Solomon got up and he dedicated the temple. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1. And when Solomon had finished praying, and what did he pray? Go back to verse 41. Now therefore arise, O Lord God, to your resting place. You and the ark of your strength, let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. Let your saints rejoice in goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Remember the mercies of your servant David. Verse 1 of chapter 7, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priests could not enter. God's glory resided in that temple. God resided. The Lord resided in that temple among men. Until he departed at the end of the period of the Jewish kings. What can we learn as we reflect on the tabernacle and the wilderness and the temple, the details? One of the powerful things we can take away from this is that the place that God lives in on the earth is important. It's very important. We won't go to Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 today that talk about the new temple that will be erected in Jerusalem. When you get a chance, you might want to look at those scriptures and the detail that God puts into it and the responsibilities, the many responsibilities of the priests. But God views the location that he dwells in as very important. God gave tremendous directions to those who kept the tabernacle and to those who kept the temple so that his dwelling place would be perfect for him to be in. <clears throat> My purpose today, brethren, is to address the new covenant temple, our body, and to remind you of how important it is to God that we take care of, very good care of, the body that God has given us to live in. And in that way, we bring honor and glory to God. A very important aspect of the Feast of Pentecost, as we were reminded in the sermonette, is that it marks the giving of God's Holy Spirit to His first fruits. Now, because of that event, God's Holy Spirit can dwell in us. Once we repent, once we're baptized, once we have hands laid on us by a true minister of God and the Holy Spirit's involved and imparted to us. God, through his Holy Spirit, can live in us. As Dr. Meredith reminds us of time and time again, Galatians 2.20, I won't turn there. But the reminder that we're crucified with Christ. And it's not we who live, but Christ lives in us through his Holy Spirit. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. As we think about the dwelling place of the Lord on the earth today. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to read some of the words of the Apostle Paul here. Words that you've read before, that you're familiar with. 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 19. Paul asks the question, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, 
whom you have from God. And you're not your own. Our bodies are that temple of God's Holy Spirit. There's no longer an earthly building today, is there? You can't go to Jerusalem and find a temple there where Jesus Christ is residing in power and glory through His Spirit. Our bodies are that building today. It's pretty awesome when you think about it. That God through His Holy Spirit, once we're baptized, lives in us. And Paul says that our bodies are the temple of God's Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have from God and you're not your own. You're not your own. I don't know about you, but that's a concept I lose track of sometimes. I think of this as being my body. My background prior to coming to work for the church, I spent a number of years working in public health and health behavior. I worked around health risk behaviors and people who engaged in high-risk health behaviors, like drug and alcohol use and abuse, like smoking of tobacco products, uh, and many other things. And I've had many, many people make the comment to me, I can do whatever I want to my body as long as I don't hurt someone else. You ever heard something like that? What is God's comment? He says, your body is a temple of, my Holy, of God's Holy Spirit and it's not your own. It's not ours. Which is a very interesting thing to ponder. And then Paul goes on in verse 20. He says, you were bought with a price. And we know that. Jesus Christ emptied himself of his deity, of his godness. He came to the earth, lived on the earth for 33 years or so as a human being was chastised during that life, died an incredible death for us, to buy us. He bought us at a price. It was his own life. Therefore, Paul says, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are yours. Oh, my Bible doesn't say that. Does yours? Glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. That's the stepping off place for the sermon today. How do we glorify God in our bodies? The temple of God's Holy Spirit. How do we use our bodies to glorify God? What can we do to make sure that we are glorifying Him in our body? Let me read a quote from... A booklet that Mr. Dr. Meredith wrote many years ago entitled The Seven, Law, Seven Laws of Radiant Health. He said, God has been interested in the physical health of his people from the beginning. The Old Testament is full of directions and laws concerned with maintaining health. And an honest and careful study of the New Testament will show that in apostolic times, Christianity was a definite way of life including an understanding and practice of basic health principles. The Apostle Paul commanded the Christians at Corinth, quote, glorify God in your body, unquote. We just read that from 1 Corinthians 6.20. He said that we are bought at a price. Our bodies belong to God. We, number one, should therefore glorify God in our physical bodies by using them as he intended and by obeying the physical laws he has set in motion. A review of the detail and the attention given to the construction and maintenance of that 
earthly temple long ago in the earthly tabernacle demonstrates just how important God thinks it is to properly take care of the temples that we reside in today. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity with another minister to visit a prospective church member. <clears throat> and it was, it was in the late afternoon, we drove up into the yard of this person's home. The house looked okay from the outside. It wasn't maintained real well, but it wasn't real shabby. Grass was a little bit long. But we walked up to the door and knocked on it, and this person met us at the door and was really kind, welcomed us into the house. As we walked into the front door of the house, it was really dark. There weren't any many lights on. And he walked us through the entryway of the house back to the living room, but he took us via the kitchen. So we walked through the middle of the kitchen into this home. Again, the kitchen was fairly dark, but one thing I did notice in the kitchen is I couldn't see the countertops in the kitchen because they were covered with boxes of and containers of partially eaten food. I mean, all the way around the countertops. Some of the food was more recent, you could tell. Some of it was all shriveled up. It had been there for, oh, I don't know. This was in the south, so it's humid. It probably had to be there for weeks before it would shrivel up. So this is the, the entrance to this person's home that we're, we're going into. Of course, we, had, we were sort of dressed up. We had on a shirt and a tie and nice slacks. He brought us into the living room, brought us over to the couch. <clears throat> and we, I looked at the couch. Again, this is someone who God may be working with, so you don't want to have a negative view of the person. But I looked at the couch, and it was very well worn. You could smell the animals that had been on it. In fact, I think when I sat down, it was still warm. And, of course, between the cushions, there were food. We had a good visit with this person. Uh, the person I don't think ever ended coming to church. But if you had been invited over to that person's home to spend the night, maybe to sleep on the couch, what would your reaction be? Maybe the dog's there with you, the dog hair, cat hair. With all that food and moisture, you know there have got to be these little bugs that scurry out of the light. Is that a place you would like to dwell in? To spend the night? Where am I going with this? I think you've probably reached the end. Very serious question. As we ponder the condition of our physical bodies and the work and the effort that we put into maintaining them, is our physical body a location that Christ looks forward to dwelling in? Or do you think he might turn up his nose when he considers residing in it? It's a powerful question. How pleased is Christ to dwell in the temple? Now, the reality is we're all made differently, aren't we? We come in different shapes. We come in different sizes. I don't think Christ says I'd rather be in a tall person than a short person. Or I'd rather be in someone who's built really thick than someone built really scrawny. I don't, I don't think that's where he's coming from. But how pleased is he to dwell in the temple? Have you ever watched some of the programs that are on television about redoing and remodeling homes? There are a series of programs that are on 
where a company comes to a family and says, we want to remodel your home for you. And when we're done, maybe you can move out and you can upgrade and buy a nicer place. Many of these shows end with the people, after their home is remodeled, fixed up, made neater, made cleaner, made brighter, many of the people decide, you know what, I don't want to move out of my home. I want to stay in my home. This is a really nice place to live. Now, at the beginning of the show, before they remodeled it, many of these people are looking for an opportunity to get out. Yet, it's the same structure when they're done. It's just had some work on it. These are interesting concepts as we think about the temple of God's Holy Spirit. What are we doing to maintain our temples and to improve them, our bodies? For those of you who aren't baptized yet, some of you are older, many of you are young, what are you doing to prepare your temple for Christ's coming residence? This is a topic that can definitely apply to all of us. Ultimately, the question becomes... How do we glorify God in our bodies? What can we do to take even better care of our bodies so that Christ will be even more pleased to dwell in it through God's Holy Spirit? What I'd like to do in the remainder of the sermon is talk about two different sets of actions that we can take to glorify God in our bodies even more. Give you some concrete things to think about and things to do. What you're going to find is I'm not going to present new information. You've heard much of this before. But I want to use this to encourage you to keep up the good work, to keep prodding yourself to do what you know you need to do. And as I point my finger at you, I've got three pointing back at me. We're all in this together. Christ lives in all of us once we're baptized. When we're not baptized yet, he wants to live in us. So these are things we need to think about. The first area of action, and there are two, two areas of action in terms of taking care of the temple of God's spirit that are more powerful than anything else we can do in this life, physically speaking. The first area has to do with physical activity and exercise, the E word. <clears throat> Brethren, God designed our bodies to need to move. Prior to coming to work for the church, I spent about 16 years studying and teaching in and working in the area of public health. And if there's one thing that I took from that experience, a lot of that experience actually had to do with working with experts, internationally known experts in physical activity. But if there's one of the take-homes that I took from my, my experience in that area of research and study was that God designed our bodies to move. Our bodies work best when they move. When they're moving, the more we move in many cases, the healthier our bodies are. First Timothy chapter four. Let's look at what Paul had to say about exercise. First Timothy chapter four and verse eight. Paul made an interesting observation. First Timothy four eight, he says, For bodily exercise profits a little. Or for a little while. But godliness is profitable for all things. So what does that mean? We need to focus on godly things and not on physical exercise, right? Because it only profits a little. Well, not quite. Let me ask you a question. The last time you were sick, and many of us have been sick recently, 
How much did you feel like focusing on godly things when you were flat on your back, in pain and exhausted? Everything's tied together, isn't it? When the body hurts, when our, when our brain hurts, when our muscles hurt, when our back hurts, when we have a fever, when we don't have energy, we don't feel like focusing on anything. Being godly is the last thing we want to do. Getting down on our knees to pray takes too much effort. At least it feels like that. And it hurts. So exercise is important. How do you look at exercise? How do you look at physical activity? Do you look at it from Thomas Jefferson's perspective? Thomas Jefferson said, let me quote him, leave all afternoon for exercise and recreation, which are as necessary as reading. I will rather say more necessary because health is worth more than learning. Is that the way you look at exercise and physical activity? Or is it more like Robert Hutchins who said, whenever I feel like exercise, I lie down until the feeling passes. Anybody ever had that feeling? Yeah, I have. You know you need to be active. You know you need to do something. But, you know, if I sit here long enough, I won't feel the need anymore. Let me ask you a question. For those of you who are taking notes, you can write these things down. For those of you who are not, think of them in your mind. I'd like you to come up with five benefits, health benefits, of regular physical activity. What are five benefits to your mind and your body of regular physical activity? Just take 15, 20 seconds. Think of them in your mind or write them down. See what you come up with. And I'm only asking you to come up with five. The reality is most of us know there are lots of benefits. Converting that knowledge into action is a whole nother story. Okay. I'm going to interrupt you and share some of them with you. What are some of the many, many benefits of regular physical activity? Getting that body moving. It improves blood pressure. If our blood pressure is too high and we are physically active on a regular basis, our blood pressure will drop. What's really interesting is you can put a blood pressure cuff on someone who's exercising. Their blood pressure will go up just a little bit to start with. It'll plateau. And while they're exercising, their blood pressure will decrease. And then when they stop exercising, for the next couple of hours, their blood pressure will stay decreased. Exercise profits for a little while, which means you have to do it again the next day to gain the benefits of it. But as long as we do it, we gain the benefits. So it it lowers blood pressure. It lowers blood cholesterol levels. Regular exercise increases immune function. It increases bone mineral density, which means you have a lower risk of osteoporosis. It increases muscle strength and muscle mass, which means you can actually increase in flexibility. And as you age, you're much less likely to fall if you have more muscle mass. Exercise increases our metabolism, which makes it easier to control our weight or even lose weight. It increases, or it helps us manage our blood glucose profile. Those who are diabetic know it's hard to manage blood glucose levels. The more we exercise, actually, the better our pancreas functions and the better we can moderate those blood sugar levels. Exercise improves our mood and our attitude. 
helps us manage stress. It helps us sleep better. It helps us have more stamina and energy. It helps us focus our minds better and even remember better. There are many other health benefits. It lowers your risk of stroke and heart attack, diabetes, certain kinds of cancer, arthritis, and the list goes on. You want to talk about the perfect drug to benefit the body? Exercise is one of them. The problem is exercise doesn't come in a pill. You can't go jogging in a jug. For those of you who are familiar with that, we actually have to do it. Let me read a couple of uh, quotes out of an article entitled The Hidden Benefits of Exercise. It was a Wall Street Journal article in January of 2010. And it quotes an internationally known exercise physiologist by the name of David Neiman. He actually teaches just up the road at Appalachian State University. It says, and I'll quote, Dr. Neiman has conducted several randomized controlled studies showing that people who walk briskly for 45 minutes, five days a week, over 12 to 15 weeks, had fewer and less severe upper respiratory tract infections, such as colds and flu. These subjects reduced their number of sick days at work, 25 to 50% compared to sedentary control subjects. Interesting findings from one of his pieces of research. People who exercised regularly got colds and flu and missed work days 25 to 50% less than those who weren't physically active. Let me change gears for a second and ask you a question about smoking, cigarette smoking. How many of us would agree that cigarette smoking is probably a sin against our bodies, a sin against the temple of God's Holy Spirit? You see a show of hands, people who think that. Cigarette smoking is a sin against the body, a sin against the temple of God's Holy Spirit. Cigarettes, interestingly, are one of the only products on the market that if used as directed by the manufacturer, will eventually kill the consumer, right? There are virtually no health benefits at all to cigarette smoking. It will destroy the body. That's what cigarette smoke does. And we don't have time to go into the really neat physiology of how that happens. Here's an interesting quote from the article that I started from a minute ago. It says, medical experts say that inactivity or not exercising regularly poses as much, excuse me, poses as great a health risk as smoking. Physical inactivity poses as great a health risk as smoking. Now, most of us in here, the overwhelming majority of us, do not smoke. Why? Because we realize it destroys the body. It's wrong. It's sinful. If exercise, or a lack of exercise, has the same effect on the body as smoking, where does that put physical inactivity? Something to ponder over as you go back and review an article by Dr. Douglas Winnale entitled, Are You Walking in the Footsteps of Christ? where he talks about physical activity. <clears throat> Here's another quote from the article in the Wall Street Journal. It says, More than 60 studies in recent years taken together suggest that women who exercise regularly, ladies, listen up, can expect a 20 to 30% reduction in the chance of getting breast cancer compared with women who don't exercise regularly. 
20 to 30 percent reduced risk of breast cancer if you exercise regularly. One study of 3,000 women being treated for breast cancer, so these are women who already had breast cancer, it was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. It showed that for those patients with hormone-responsive tumors, so a specific group of women with a specific kind of breast cancer, for them, walking the equivalent of three to five hours a week at an average pace reduced the risk of dying from breast cancer by 50% compared to sedentary women. We're talking about powerful impacts of exercise on the body. Here's another study from that was uh, referred to in the New York Times, November 30, 2011, an article entitled, How Exercise Benefits the Brain. And you don't have to raise your hand, but is there anyone who wishes their brain functioned a little bit better than it does now? Many of us could probably raise our hands for that one. <clears throat> Other new studies have researched similar conclusions among both people and animals, young and old. In one interesting experiment, Brazilian scientists found that after sedentary elderly rats, we'll get to rats in a minute, after they ran for a mere five minutes or so, several days a week for five weeks, a cascade of biochemical processes ignited in the memory center of their brains. The old exercised animals then performed almost as well as much younger rats on rodent memory tests which is interesting. Now, these are rats, right? Why do scientists use rats? Because even though rats look a lot different from us, the physiology responds very much the same way as human physiology does to stimulants. So what did they find? The old rats were almost as smart as the young ones after five weeks of exercise. Their brains worked almost as well. We can take this pill and this pill and this pill for memory, but what the research is showing is that exercise negates the need to even take pills in terms of helping your brain function better. Pretty neat when you think about it. In John 10.10, 10, let's go ahead and turn there. John chapter 10, verse 10, we're let in on one of the reasons why Jesus Christ came to the earth in the flesh. We know there were many. He came first and foremost to die for us so our sins could be forgiven. So that we can have the opportunity to enter the kingdom of God. He came to the earth so he could be resurrected and go to the Father so that the Helper could come to us, God's Holy Spirit, and dwell in us and lead us into all understanding. John 10, verse 10, says the thief, does, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I, Christ said, have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. In my father's article on, are you walking in the, in the footsteps of Christ? It's a Tomorrow's World reprint article. He talks about how if we're walking in the footsteps of Christ, we want to do that spiritually, certainly, but we even want to do that physically. What does it mean to walk in the footsteps of Christ? Mr. Nathan mentioned a few minutes ago how near the end of Christ's ministry, he was in Galilee and he was getting ready to go up to Jerusalem to keep that last great Pentecost, or Passover. Galilee 
if we do a little bit of study on the geography of the Holy Land, Galilee is at an elevation of about 700 feet below sea level. Jerusalem is at an elevation of about 2,500 feet above, about a half a mile. Galilee is about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. So when Christ prepared to journey to Jerusalem, he's getting ready on foot with his disciples to travel 60 miles and not on the level, not flat. He's going up and down and up and up and up to Jerusalem. When you look at his ministry, and and I'd encourage you to do this at some point, as you read through the gospel accounts, look at where Christ goes and flip back and forth with the text and the maps at the back of your Bible. And look at the travel Jesus Christ did. It's interesting. The only time we see Jesus Christ riding on an animal was right the week before he died when he rode on a mule into Jerusalem. The rest of the time, he walked hundreds of miles. In fact, there are uh, theologians who figured out how many miles he probably actually did walk according to the gospel accounts. But he set the example of moving, walking, using his body, which is actually really exciting as we think about it. Why don't most of us, and I can raise my hand to that at times, why don't most of us move as frequently as we need to? What are the reasons why we're not as physically active as we know we should be? What keeps you from being as physically active as you know in the back of your head that you should be? There are two, two huge issues. One of them has to do, well, most of us don't wear these anymore. We, we open up our devices and we look at what time it is. But one of them is time, isn't it? I don't have time to exercise. Get out there for a half an hour. I've got to get changed. And then I'm going to sweat. And then I've got to shower or take a bath. It's really time consuming. And where am I going to put it? I've got more important things to do. What's the other thing that we don't like about physical activity? It takes work. It takes work. It takes time and it takes work. A lot of us don't like to get up and sweat. We don't like to work hard. Our bodies. It's much more comfortable. How did uh, that guy say it? Whenever I feel like exercise, I lie down until the feeling passes. We know that. We, me too, we're inherently lazy. Our bodies want to relax. We want to take it easy. Yet to maintain these temples, we've got to push them to move, don't we? And we know that. The recommended uh, amount of exercise is cumulatively 30 minutes a day. They say seven days a week. Take the Sabbath off or go easier on the Sabbath. But moving, moving in what the research shows, if we move more than we are now, any increase above where we are at, we will begin to benefit from the exercise. In Mr. Partian's last couple years of life, those of you who worked at the office, especially upstairs, saw this. Mr. Partian would, most days, get up and get his exercise. Debbie Lincoln Strange would help him out. He'd get his cane at some point, sometimes not, and he would just walk laps on the inside of the building. He'd go around two, three, probably four times once in a while. Not a lot of exercise, but it was above and beyond sitting. 
and it was beneficial. When Dr. Meredith comes into the office, those who work on reception know this, he comes in in the morning, and instead of heading over to the elevator, he heads to the stairs. It takes him a little while to get up the stairs, but he's pushing his body to exercise, to get that activity, because he knows for the rest of the day he's going to sit. I appreciate the examples of our elder statesmen in the church of of setting that example of, of being physically active. So, how do we take care of the temple of God's Holy Spirit? What is one powerful way to glorify God in our bodies? Try and seek regular exercise, physical activity. Depends on where we are in our life. Not everyone can put on a pair of running shoes. That's how I get my exercise right now. I jog. I know that won't last forever. My knees will give out. Mr. Lee reminds me of that. But while it works, I'm going to take advantage of it. But I encourage you to do that too. Try and figure out what you can do to change your schedule. Rearrange your schedule to get some more physical activity. Exercise profits a little while. And as we've seen... Just from a snapshot, doing it will impact our bodies in incredible ways. Improve our health, help us manage our weight, give us more stamina, make our minds sharper so we can actually focus better spiritually, and help make our bodies a temple that Christ would like to dwell in even more. What's another way that we can glorify God in our bodies? So if you were up here giving the sermon... And the next step was up to you. What would you talk about? A number of different things. But really one of probably the, the other most profound way we can impact our bodies and our health and glorify God in our bodies is by the food that we put into it. The food that we put into it. You know that. You've heard the, the phrase, you are what you eat. Let me quote again from Dr. Meredith's booklet, The Seven Laws of Radiant Health. He says, the body is formed entirely from the food we eat, yet the average person has very little knowledge of what really ought to be eaten to build strong, vigorous bodies. Many of the products commonly called foods are of little or no value in sustaining, nourishing, or building the body. In fact, it's been proven by tests that they do actually harm the body. They clog the digestive system, aggravate it, and become a real burden to the body to eliminate. In many cases... They act as poisons, not foods. The basic thing to remember in selecting foods is to be sure that you eat natural foods, which have not been corrupted or perverted by man-made food factories, and that you learn to have a balanced diet containing all the elements your body requires to sustain and build health. Really helpful observation from Dr. Meredith. Fifty years after he wrote that, we have science to back up why those ideas are really wise ideas. So let me ask you again. Take 15 or 20 seconds and write down or come up with in your mind what are some of the benefits of a healthy diet. How can they benefit the body? How can they benefit the mind? A healthy diet. What are some of the many benefits of a healthy diet? Balanced diet. By the way, if you would like more information on how to have a healthier body and a healthier diet, we actually have a couple of Living University courses that talk about this in detail. 
I actually teach a course on health and wellness in which we spend an entire semester going into different aspects of health. And we offer a course in an introduction to nutrition that also talks about these important issues. So what are some of the benefits of a healthy diet? Some of them are the same, actually many are the same, as the benefits of exercise. You can lower your blood pressure with a healthy diet. You can lower your blood sugar, your blood glucose levels. For those who are diabetic, that's huge. You can lower your blood cholesterol levels. You can strengthen your immune system, making you less susceptible to all kinds of diseases. You can reduce your risk of osteoporosis. You can reduce your risk of multiple kinds of cancers. You can manage your weight more effectively or lose weight more effectively. You can increase your mental function and your memory. You can manage your stress levels more effectively, all with food. Who would have thunk it? Who would think that food could have that kind of an impact? Yet when we look at the way God fearfully and wonderfully designed our bodies, food is one of those essential elements. You know, you put the wrong kind of gasoline into your vehicle, what happens? You drive a gasoline vehicle and you put in diesel fuel. It's not going to work very well for very long. You have a car that runs on gasoline and you try and pour in vegetable oil. How's it going to work? It's not, unless you retool the engine first. Same thing with food. What I'd like to do is look at several different areas of diet. And we're going to look at some principles from the Bible. And what God's principles have to say about the food that we put into our bodies. And these are things I think we can all relate to and and understand on various levels. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 7. Leviticus chapter 7. Actually, we're going back to the area that God outlined when he gave the commands to the priesthood for how to take care of the temple. But there's a very important principle that relates to diet in here. Even though God's primary intention with this comment didn't relate necessarily to health overall. God had another point that he was making. Leviticus chapter 7, starting in verse 23. Leviticus 7 verse 23 says, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, You shall not eat any fat of ox or sheep or goat, and the fat of an animal that dies naturally, and the fat of what is torn by wild beasts may be used in any other way, but you shall by no means eat it. For whoever eats of the fat of an animal, of which men offer as an offering made by fire to the Lord, the person who eats it shall be cut off from his people. This had to do in great part with being ceremonially pure before God when you came to the temple. Verse 26, Moreover, you shall not eat any blood in any of your dwellings, whether bird or beast, Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. Now we know from science and medical research that there are health reasons why God said don't eat these things. Why did God say don't eat blood? Beside the fact that God said the life is in the blood. And from that perspective, blood has a powerful meaning. Christ's blood was shed for us. You don't eat that. But what's the health benefits that are associated with not eating blood. Why is it a bad idea to eat blood sausage <laughs> and other blood products? 
because blood carries disease-causing organisms. Bacteria, viruses are transmitted through the blood. Some of them are killed by heat, others are not. Depends on the pathogen. So if you don't eat blood, guess what? You're not passing infectious diseases on to people that are contaminating, contaminated in blood. God also said don't eat the fat, the fat of animals here. Why did he say don't eat fat? Well, we have decades of health research and medical research now that tells us why eating fat, animal fat, is unwise. It increases our likelihood of heart disease and different kinds of cancers and stroke and overweight. So there are lots of benefits to not eating fat. You know, the, the skin on the chicken or the, the, the fat that's around the different cuts of meat. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later too. But one of the powerful principles with health and, and with diet is avoiding eating fat and avoiding eating blood. Things we know, things we understand. I haven't been to any of your homes where you just pull out the fat back and start slicing it up. We don't do that. We know it's not good for us, but we need to be careful with those things. What's another area in diet that we need to be careful of? Deuteronomy 21. Deuteronomy 21, and this one's a little bit more challenging to deal with. It, it comes a little bit closer to home sometimes. Yet it's a powerful example that God has given us, and he's very clear about it, not just in Deuteronomy, but we can go into the writings of Paul in the New Testament. At a time when God began dwelling in the temple of God's Holy Spirit, human bodies, and God's saying the same thing. Deuteronomy chapter 21 Verse 20, Deuteronomy 21, 20. And they shall say to the elders of the city, this is how to deal with a rebellious child at the time under the statutes. But notice the example that's being used in, in the context. They shall say to the elders of the city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. What else? He's a glutton and a drunkard. And then this is the part that my parents used to remind me of growing up with rebellious children. Then all the men of the city shall stone him and put him to death with stones. So you shall put away the evil from among you. My parents used to remind me growing up, you shouldn't be rebellious against your parents. Look at the way they were look at the way kids used to be treated. This is what God thinks about it. My parents hit that home pretty well, and my brother and I. But what God brings out here is the way that God negatively negatively looks at being a glutton and a drunkard. And these two things are together. We see that in the New Testament. Drunkards and gluttons won't enter the kingdom of God. <clears throat> so what do we need to think about? What do we need to remember about this? And about these two concepts. Gluttony. How many of us... Don't raise your hand, please. How many of us would say we're a glutton? Probably not many of us. We don't want to claim that one. <clears throat> People accuse Christ of being a drunkard and a glutton. He wasn't, but they accused him of that. What is a glutton? A glutton is someone who eats too much. Eats too much food. They can make a god out of food. In fact, we see it compared to idolatry in other places. How can we tell if we eat too much? How can we tell if we eat too much? It's not necessarily looking in the mirror. Once we stop growing, you know, we got young people in this audience, 
that are growing. And they're going to gain weight even if you don't feed them. It's just the way their bodies work right now. But once we stop growing, if we continue gaining weight, here a pound, there a pound, here a pound, there a pound, it's an indicator that we're eating too much. Weight gain comes from eating in most cases. So if we're gaining weight and we don't want to be gaining weight, the odds are it's because we're eating too much. We need to cut back a little bit. Cut back on our portion sizes. Cut back on what we're eating. Gluttony is something God wants us to be aware of. Overeating can cause all kinds of diseases, can't it? It can lead to diabetes, risk for heart attack, risk for stroke, high blood pressure, all kinds of things. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So we're talking here about a second sort of sub-point on our food and diet, and that's gluttony, overeating, and also alcohol use. 1 Corinthians 5. I'm going to remind you of a principle that you know here in 1 Corinthians 5, if I can find it in my Bible. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11. What do we see in Paul writing here the church at Corinth? He says, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. So he's saying, people in the church who are doing these things, you shouldn't be around them. And what are those characteristics? Number one, sexually immoral. So um, they're either committing fornication or adultery. Covetous, an idolater or a reviler. A drunkard, an extortioner. Not even to eat with such a person. God doesn't want us to spend time around people who drink too much. Why? Because it can rub off, number one. And because lots of things happen when we're not in control of our mental faculties. And in fact, there's a spirit being that looks for opportunity to make his way in. If we drop our, our spiritual defenses, and, and alcohol, too much alcohol will make that happen. To drop our spiritual defenses, Satan can make his way right in. God says, stay away from these kind of people. Now, there's a balance with alcohol, isn't there? God says you must drink it if you're baptized, right? Once a year. You come before me on the Passover, it's just a little sip. But that little bit of red wine represents the blood of Christ. God says drink it. Is alcohol awful for us in moderation? Of course not. Christ was a winemaker. This is his first public miracle. He turned water into wine. And the night before he died, he told the disciples, I'm not going to drink this wine with you again until when? In the kingdom. Christ is going to drink wine. So alcohol often by itself is not a bad thing. It's, it's the balance, isn't it? There are actually health benefits for drinking alcohol in moderation. You can actually lower your risk of certain cancers and heart disease from drinking alcohol in moderation. But once you cross a threshold, you actually increase your risk of heart disease in certain kind of cancers. And that risk threshold, according to research, seems to be about one drink a day. If you drink more than one drink a day over the course of a week, you actually increase your risk for different kinds of diseases. It's just an interesting thing to keep in mind. But God says, be careful, don't eat too much. We need to eat enough to take care of our bodies, to give our bodies what we need, but we don't want to eat too much. Avoid gluttony, avoid drunkenness. What's another aspect of nutrition, diet, that we need to keep in mind? 
Let's go to Genesis chapter 2. It's really amazing when you start looking in the Bible at the health advice and the health principles that God puts forth. Genesis chapter 2. Now we're going to go to a passage of scripture that some will use to try and justify um, being a vegetarian. And they've got to twist scripture tremendously to be able to do this. This is not talking about being a vegetarian. But it is giving us a principle. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. So we see a couple things going on here. There's a spiritual lesson to be learned by Adam and Eve. God said, don't do this. And that's a whole other message. But God told Adam and Eve to eat. Eat of every tree, every bush in the garden. Eat your fruits and vegetables is in essence what God was saying. What's really amazing is as we look at the research that's come out in the last 10 years especially, the power of fruits and vegetables to impact our health in a positive way is astounding. It seems like every new study that comes out points out there are even more benefits to doing those things that your parents probably taught you to do when you're at the table. Eat your vegetables. Don't leave them there. Some of us spend a lot of time sitting at the table hoping that the vegetables would eat themselves when we were young. But the amazing thing is the powers of fruits and vegetables to help us balance our weight, to boost our immune function. Some of these chemicals that are in fruits and vegetables naturally occurring that God put there actually help reduce our risk of cancers. They break down early cancers in the body. And they're present in fresh fruits and vegetables, which is an amazing thing. When we think about eating fruits and vegetables, the brighter or the darker the color, the better. This is a rule of thumb. Bright orange, bright yellow, bright purple, dark green. These things are wonderful for us. They're very good. And God said eat them. Probably eat them as much, almost as much as you want. Now you can overdo anything. But they're very good. If we look at our plate and what we put on a plate... Experts recommend that about half of that plate be filled with fruits and vegetables. That's how important they are for us and for our health. And it's a godly principle. Eat of every tree, every bush of the garden. The power of fruits and vegetables for health is amazing. Let's look at another principle, Luke chapter 6. So we've talked about avoiding fat and blood, avoiding gluttony and alcohol, eating fruits and vegetables, Another principle is avoiding refined foods. Avoiding refined foods. And Dr. Meredith talked about that in the quote I gave you a minute ago. Luke chapter 6, we see an interesting incident or situation here with Jesus Christ. About the time of the Passover, on the Sabbath day. Actually, uh, is it Luke that talks about on the Sabbath after the Sabbath? I think so. It happened, yes. Luke 6, verse 1, it happened on the Sabbath, 
excuse me, on the second Sabbath after the first Sabbath. So we're talking about the unleavened bread holy days here. Uh, that he went through the grain fields and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. Interesting to see what they did. Now, for those of you who've taken the Theology 135, I think you have a discussion question on this. What kind of grain was he, were they eating here? Was it corn or was it something else? The King James Version um, describes this as corn. Mr. Nathan can inform us a little bit later, but the English perspective on corn is, is a general term to refer to grain. And so the King James translators had that perspective. We also know that it can't be corn, as we call it in America, or maize, as it's called all over the world. It can't be because the springtime is not the harvest season for that grain. This is going to be probably barley that they're eating. And part of the reason we know that, too, is because they plucked it with their hands. It says they rubbed it together. What do you rub barley together for, or wheat? Because you get the chaff off of it. You blow it off, you get the chaff off, and then you can eat it. But what we see them doing here is they're eating whole grains. They didn't process them. They ate whole grains. Unrefined grains. Which is important. What medical science has shown us over recent years is that when you take primarily the bran off the outside of grains, you take away most of the nutrients, most of the vitamins, most of the minerals, and much of the fiber. There's actually fibrous products in that husk around the grain that helps break it down. You take it off and your body can't break it down as well. And so we wind up with digestive problems with people eating refined products. But part of the principle is to eat things as God made them. Eat eat, eat the whole grains. Avoid the man-made things. Dr. Meredith said that in his comments that I read to you a few minutes ago. Avoid man-made foods, man-made fats. You've heard of trans fats. It's a man-made fat that man has literally whipped up. A little bit of water, a little bit of fat, you whip it up, and it has a really long shelf life called partially hydrogenated oils. But your body doesn't know what to do with it. It doesn't occur in nature. And so it causes problems in your body. We make man-made sugars today, don't we? And usually about 15 to 20 years after the man-made sugar comes out, they put a little label on the back of that man-made sugar that says, this product has been shown to cause cancer in laboratory animals. The body doesn't know how to handle it. The idea of avoiding man-made things and pre-packaged foods is, is wise. Even though some of them taste really good, don't they? That bag of potato chips... Or that little cake that comes in that plastic bag or that little box. They taste good. It's because they have lots of fat, lots of sugar, and lots of salt in them. And our taste buds love it. But if the thing will stay on a shelf for a year and a half and not spoil, what will it do in your body? Think about it. It's sort of funny to consider but we need to really limit our use and our intake of those prepackaged foods. Foods that come in boxes, in bags. Once in a while, it's not going to kill you. It won't even make you sick if your, your diet's balanced. But if we make a routine out of eating it, it can make us sick and not well. 
What's one more thing to think about in terms of diet? One more area. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 12. I never really thought about this passage that way, this way until recently. Exodus 12, we have the first Passover. We have God giving guidelines for keeping the Passover. How to prepare for the Passover, how to prepare the Passover lamb, how to pick it, how to kill it, how to cook it. And what do we see here? Exodus chapter 12, verse 8 and verse 9. Exodus 12, 8 and 9. They shall eat of the flesh that night, roasted in the fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. They shall eat it. So God says, as you prepare this lamb, baby goat, baby sheep, here's how you want to do it. You want to roast it. Now, there's multiple reasons why God said to do that. And part of it is a culinary perspective, I'm sure. God actually elsewhere says that he appreciates the sweet savor of burning meat. Anybody else appreciate it? Ever been in your neighborhood when a next-door neighbor is maybe grilling out on their barbecue? A steak? Chicken? What does that smell like? It smells great, and you sort of want to invite yourself over. God made us to enjoy these things. So certainly that's part of it. But there are other benefits. Let's, read, let's continue reading on here. He says, you're too roasted. Verse 9, do not eat it raw. Why don't eat it raw? Because you're talking about disease risk. You eat raw meat and you can pass all kinds of things like bacteria, like worms. Even beef can contain worms. So we've got to be careful. Don't eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roast it in the fire. What's the benefit of roasting meat versus boiling it? Besides the stink, you know, you boil meat and it usually doesn't smell very good. What happens when you boil meat? When you boil anything, really, boil vegetables, you run into the same problem. You boil out the nutrients, the vitamins and the minerals. You throw something in a, some vegetables in a pot and you boil them. Years ago, what did you used to do, you older brethren? You boil vegetables in the pot. What did you do with the liquid in the pot after you boiled the vegetables in it? You drank it, the pot liquor. Why? Because that's where all, we, we knew that. We knew that a while ago. That's where all the vitamins are. You boil them out of the vegetable. You do the same thing with the meat. You can boil out the beneficial uh, nutrients in the meat. Why roast it? What happens to the fat on meat when you roast it? Over an open fire, on a grill, or in an oven, on a rack? Remember God said don't eat fat. Don't eat any manner of animal fat. What happens to the fat? It melts, doesn't it? It leaves the meat. And it leaves the meat lean. God had some important things that he was saying. In the simple principle that had to do with the Passover... There's a health principle where God says there are wise ways to cook meat, for example, and there are less wise ways. And it even applies to vegetables when we think about how it works. Cooking healthy. <clears throat> now this says don't, don't boil in water. In some parts of the world, in parts of the country, we boil vegetables and meats and other things. Not in water, we boil it in what? Oil, right? We call it fried. And it tastes good too, doesn't it? 
throw some potatoes in there, and you wind up with french fries or chips, depending on which side of the pond you're from, a little bit of salt, making you hungry yet? Yet what happens when we boil things in oil? Is it healthy for us? No, we all know it's not real healthy. A lot more calories that do a lot of bad things in the body. Are french fries once in a while going to hurt you? Are crisps, chips going to hurt you once in a while? Dessert? No. In most cases, no. In moderation. It's the routine. I was teaching a health class one time in Birmingham, Alabama. <clears throat> I don't know if my wife remembers. She was sitting in on the class, and we are talking about health and diet. And I was talking about how we need to be careful of eating too much fried things and too much fat. And this woman raised her hand. She said, I eat pizza every night. Is that too often? And so we talked a little bit about it and how she might want to vary that diet a little bit more. You know, taper off, maybe start with eating it only four times a week. Eat some vegetables with it, and then maybe less frequently than that. <clears throat> Fried foods are good. They taste great. But they're not overly healthy for us. In fact, what some of the research has shown is that when we fry a carbohydrate like a potato or we bread something and fry it, it actually can create cancer-causing agents. And the research bears that out. So we've got to be careful. What's the key? What's the key with diet? Because God made us to love to eat, didn't he? You ever watch a dog eat? Take a piece of steak, a piece of meat, and you throw it down in front of a dog, and what does it do? You know, it doesn't sit down there with its fork and its knife and cut off a little piece and... Mmm, and just savor it. The dog will inhale the meat, won't it? Eating is not a culinary event for an animal. They do it to live. Yet God has designed us fearfully, wonderfully, and lovingly to be able to appreciate what we eat. The smells, the textures, the flavors, the temperatures, to really enjoy it. The key is in Philippians 4 5 as we think about food. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. I'm going to read it in the New King James. I like the translation in the King James Version better. And when you really get into nutrition research, it's going to tell you the same thing that God said about 2,000 years ago with the Apostle Paul. Philippians 4 verse 5. Let your gentleness be known among men. The Lord is at hand. What does the King James say? Some of you have the King James Version in front of you. Let your moderation be known among men. When we think about balance and moderation, that's the key to health. Taking care of God's temple is not living such a restrictive life that you can't wait to be turned into a spirit being so you can finally say yes. God wants us to enjoy this life. Christ came so that we can have life and have it more abundantly. But we've got to figure out how to do that and also take care of the temple. A little bit of dessert's fine. A lot is not. Dessert once or twice a week is probably okay. Every night or a couple times a night is probably not the greatest idea. We've got to strike that balance. So as we summarize nutrition and move into the conclusion here, balanced portions are important. Lots of fruits, lots of vegetables, not too much food. 
Limiting sugary and fatty and fried foods. Avoiding processed foods that come prepackaged. Eating lots of colors and textures of food. Balancing and moderating our alcohol consumption. These are all important factors. Brethren, God has given us the privilege of having a temple in which he wants to dwell and does dwell once we're baptized. Under the new covenant sealed in Christ's blood, there is no longer a physical building on the face of the earth for God to live in. That building was destroyed a couple of thousand years ago. Emmanuel dwells with us. He dwells in us when we're baptized. He calls our bodies his temple. They're not ours, they're his. And he wants us to glorify these bodies before him. As we consider the Feast of First Fruits, brethren, and the special access we now have to God's Holy Spirit, I encourage you to seriously consider how much attention you give to maintaining the temple of that spirit. How pleased is God to dwell in this temple? Brethren, as we glorify God in our bodies, remember the powerful importance of regular physical activity and doing it. All of us can do it. Depending on our stage in life and our health, we've got to bite it off at smaller chunks. But we can all do it, and probably most of us, myself included, can do more of it. I encourage you, take a look at your schedule. Examine yourself on this. Try and make physical activity a daily habit. Also examine what you eat. Even more. Be a little more careful. Learn to enjoy even more foods that are healthy and healthier. Brethren, we've all got to figure out how to better glorify God in our bodies and do it. As James said in James 1.22, and I won't turn there, be doers of the word and not hearers only. I encourage you, keep doing. In taking care of your body, keep doing and do even better. Glorify God even more in your body and give God, through his Holy Spirit, a wonderful, pristine, and healthy place in which to live. Brethren, do all you can to take care of the temple of God's Holy Spirit.